Hope y'all are doing good tonight. Thank you for being here this evening. It is one of the greatest joys that I have to get a chance to just be here with you each week. I got to tell you, it's a blessing to me. It's blessed my heart this, really these last three weeks, uh, how many folks have come up to me and just shared that there have been meaningful things said in the last three weeks in this series, Hope in Dark Places. It's, it's meant the world to me to have folks say, you know, I always... Had, had despair around this passage of scripture. I always, you know, struggled with this or that in terms of, and, and you know, even when the struggle's still going on to some extent, perhaps there's a, a sense of, um, of it being a, a blessing and understanding that now is there. So uh, thank you for that. I, I do want to go ahead and give you a little bit of an industry secret, I guess, for lack of a better term. Sometimes when pastors plan a series out, they got three of those four weeks just fully, they, they know what those are going to be. And that last one's a little bit tougher. So if tonight you go away going, I don't know about that one, well, maybe you can pretend it's free throws and just say, well, three out of four ain't too bad. We'll go with that. So, uh, but, but I really, um, really tried to seek where the Lord would have us go tonight. For the last three weeks, uh, I've really felt those three passages came to mind right away. Hebrews 6, Romans 9, Hebrews 10. Uh, those are passages that I think for as long as I've been in ministry, uh, I've received questions about. What I wanted to do tonight was to be able to circle through three Old Testament passages that sometimes also maybe are not quite to the same level, each of them individually, but they often might create a question that would get asked that can sort of gnaw at us if we're not you know, careful. And so an understanding of what this passage teaches, what it might not teach and uh, I hope tonight that that will be a blessing to you. So I've got handouts. There's still some here at the front. If you need some, uh, you can either walk forward or if you wave your hand real frantically, somebody will feel sorry for you and bring you one uh, either way. But I um, hope you got a chance to get those tonight if you want one. Uh, can we say a word of prayer? And we'll begin this evening. Uh, Father, as Pastor Brandon shared, thank you for that you are the, the God of wonders, the God of heaven and earth, that we haven't even begun to explore the depths of creation that you sum up in a few words in our Bible. And Lord, at the same time, that how much more do you care about our lives and our souls uh, for what you have revealed to us? And so as has been our prayer for the entire month, we just ask that for any dark places, uh, that you would shine the light of hope who always uh, is ultimately embodied in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that Jesus and the power of the cross uh, and an empty grave would, would grow in our hearts and minds. That we would be moved to worship, that we would be moved as we have prayed to, uh, to be revived. And just ask tonight, Lord, your blessing uh, upon my uh, frail words and, and lips. And I just ask that for the sake of your name, uh, for the sake of our hearts, uh, that you would do a work that only you can. We thank you. We praise you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. We're going to look at three Old Testament passages quickly. All of them are passages that I wouldn't want to spend an entire sermon time speaking on, and so maybe this is a little bit cheating. I remember preaching a sermon on Proverbs year, years ago that was called Five Little Sermons, because every verse in Proverbs sometimes has a different subject than the one that came before it, and so it's hard at times to have a collective, continuous uh, message throughout. But I did, ironically enough, come into these three passages. I had made it all the way through these three before I realized 
some of the similarities uh, that tied them together. Each of these passages have been points in my ministry where folks have come up and said, you know, as I got to this passage, what's really troubled me is this. And so we arrive at this tonight. And so I want to say a few things in a means of introduction or to set up where we will go uh, that you'll see there points to consider with Old Testament passages. When we read the Old Testament, Boy, there's some stuff in there at times that just we can, you know, besides the genealogies and besides the long lists of years and various names, there's often things that happen that uh, perhaps you say, boy, I'm glad I wasn't alive during that time period. Or you say, wow, how in the world could such depravity, such difficulty, such evil happen? Uh, Perhaps other thoughts that would come to mind to say, well, what in the world is going on in what I just read? I think years ago, one of the reasons that evangelistic organizations started, excuse me, giving out either only New Testaments or sometimes even a gospel by itself, perhaps the gospel of John, uh, was often to ju- the realization that for someone who has never read the Bible to begin in Genesis and try to work their way all the way to the Gospels, uh, there might be a lot of difficulty to cross that could be alleviated by being able to look at the Gospel first and then look backwards from there. And so as we, we come to the passages in the Old Testament, a few things that I want to say tonight uh, that I, I've got for us here. Whoops, I think I might have. Huh, somebody got my key, and, uh, and I'm going to have to fill in the blanks by memory. Now, this really ought to be fun tonight. We'll see how this goes. Y'all ready? If anybody's out there with a the key, you win tonight. You've got the, you won the drawing. No, number one is this. We're reminded of our need for the cross and the difference that Jesus has made in God's interactions with mankind. The beautiful thing when we look backwards at the Old Testament is we should continually be drawn to the fact, God, thank you that Jesus Christ now stands in my place. Because when I read the Old Testament, I see how God's interaction with mankind was not, uh, was not interceded by the person of Jesus Christ. That God was merciful and God was just, but often in the Old Testament we see how the presence of God or the, uh, the, the will of God at work in human history at times just reminds us, Lord, thank you that we live on this side of Calvary and that the, uh, the arrangement for us in some ways is different and fulfilled in a way that it wasn't for those often in the Old Testament. We're reminded of our need for the cross. Um, number, number two, you can actually use one of these two words. We have to be clear in determining what God endorses, or if you'd rather use the word blesses, whatever one you like better. We have to be clear in determining what God endorses and separating that from what God allows. From what God endorses or God blesses and separating that from what God allows. I'll give you an example. One of the questions, if you've been in church for a while, is somebody might come up to you and ask at some point, why did God let all those men have all those wives in the Old Testament? What in the world was going on with that? You come to Solomon and you think, you can't even remember all your wives' names. 700 and then 300 concubines, if my memory's correct. And so you've got all this and you think, how in the world, why did God... You know, why did God have that arrangement then? Well, here's what I'll go ahead and give you a spoiler alert for. If you look backwards in the Old Testament, here's what you'll find. From Genesis to Malachi, you will see this again and again in every circumstance. In every circumstance where it was not one husband and one wife, it led to disaster. Every single one of them without fail. There are no 
there are no good situations. Now, we don't know every circumstance with Solomon's wives. When you come to Solomon, though, that not only affected his family, the entire nation was plunged into idolatry and ultimately would be split because of uh, the choices, ultimately, a lot of it pointing back to that. Uh, You see again and again, whether it was David's life, Abraham's life, whether it was Jacob's life, it, it never works out well. It never, ever, ever does. And so what you come to is a realization, God never commanded men to have more than one wife. He never even endorsed or blessed men having more than one wife. What he did do is that he did not ordain every step of their lives. He allowed them the freedom to make mistakes just like he allows us. There are things and times in your life when you look backward, you think, boy, God could have zapped me dead just right there in that moment. Lightning could have fallen from heaven and and he didn't that God allows and and some of the allowances that he has are for his children to have to learn from their own mistakes. And sometimes the price of that being paid uh, on a fairly large scale. So we have to be clear in determining what God endorses and separating that from what God allows. Number three, we have to be comfortable at times with an element of mystery that we cannot fully reconcile with our finite understanding. We have to be comfortable with a level of mystery. And I don't know about you, but, but as Pastor Brandon shared with, you know, I, I hope we never figure out everything about outer space, because I don't think we will. But, but somehow looking at something that we can't fully understand, there's more majesty and a, and a better understanding that God's bigger than our understanding can be, bigger than our concepts and finite minds. In the same way, when we come backwards to passages, if we could fit the theology and the practices of God into a tiny little box and just, you know, keep them in our pocket, he wouldn't be the God of heaven and earth. That we often have to come to passages and at the end of the day, for some of them, we'll say, well, here's what's clear and here's what I won't know until I get to heaven. Somebody asked me last week, can you, can you talk about those Nephilim next week? <laughs> and I said, no. Um, <laughs> There's, there's a level of mystery there, not that I don't enjoy talking about that, but, um, but yeah, there's going to be things we don't find out fully exactly what was going on until we get to heaven, and that's okay. Uh, we have to be comfortable with that. That's not a failure. And I think particularly as we pray for, as we look to the salvation and the growth of, uh, of our young adults who at times are going to encounter different things than maybe we did growing up, we got to be real careful about what Scripture conclusively teaches and what we just think about where we want to fill in the gaps, maybe where God didn't. One of my favorite questions in the scripture is when God comes to Job, when he's challenging him, you know, at the end, and he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? There's a lot we don't know. And that draws us to dependence on the Lord. And when we read the Bible, whether it's Old or New Testament, there will be times uh, that we come to that and that's okay. Because Paul said the mystery ultimately has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And when sometimes we don't know the answer to certain questions, the answer that we do have and the one that we do know, uh, the way that we have seen God, as Jesus says, we've seen him, we've seen the Father when we've seen the Son, uh, that Jesus has been the revealed mystery that we all need. So can we look at three passages just quickly tonight? I want to look at the book of Judges first, a story you may remember about the dad that nobody wanted. At least if you would have been his daughter, you would have felt that way. Now, you might remember the book of Judges from the Old Testament is, 
You might remember that if you ever learned the books of the Bible, you have that sort of tiny sentence there that you can remember, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And so that sort of helps you connect those three. You've got the children of Israel having, you know, come through not only with Moses, but then with Joshua. And then you come to the book of Judges and you read really two phrases in the, in the book of Judges. The most well-known one that occurs repeatedly is that uh, there was no king in Israel in those days. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's still with us as well, isn't it? That's sort of the statement you could make about all of human history, but particularly in the time of the Judges. Another phrase that you'll see towards the beginning of the book is this, there arose a generation in Israel who knew not God nor the works that he had done. And so you've got a balance of both of those things. Now the next generation had not themselves crossed through the Red Sea. They had not themselves, you know, done this or done that. And so now there was a need for, some of you have read Jim Cimbala's book, A Fresh Wind and a Fresh Fire. There was a need to understand the God of their fathers and their grandfathers and grandmothers. And so we come to the book of Judges and you read through that book and it is a mess at times. You've got every, every young boy who's ever been through Sunday school remembers the story of Samson. He's in there. You might remember the story of Gideon. Those are probably the two most popular stories in there, but you have a host of things in the book of Judges that are very difficult. One of the most challenging ones is a man named Jephthah who in the midst of uh, seeking to win a battle makes a vow to the Lord uh, to end the life of whatever comes running out, excuse me, to him uh, from his home when he arrives. I'm thinking maybe he had a dog he didn't like that was always out first to greet him, and he thought that was two birds with one stone. I don't really know, but, uh, but I'd like for us to look. Uh, some of y'all are dog people. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just trying to be real here. <laughs> Judges 11, let's start with verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Arawer to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Karamim with a great blow. And so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low, and you've become the cause of great trouble to me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow." And she said to him, my father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. I've sort of tried to italicize the question that I've received through the years from each of these three passages. The italicized question you've got on your sheet tonight is this, why did God hold Jephthah to fulfill his vow even at the cost of his own daughter's life? I've got an immediate statement that comes afterwards, it's actually quite simple, he didn't. What you will never find in this passage is God saying, now it's time to fulfill your vow. What you do have is Jephthah saying, well, I made this vow. I can't go back on my vow, even at the cost of his own daughter's life who runs out to meet him. Now, we could get into conversations about cultural, you know, emphasis on vows and what that would mean. Ultimately, though, what we would really boil back to more than anything else, I think, is Jephthah's pride. 
that at the end of the day, what he's got to decide is, can I admit I'm wrong and can I even perhaps have to seek the forgiveness of the Lord and not be sure exactly what that looks like, uh, even if it means what's right is, uh, is, is, to, um, is to go back on that vow that was there. When I was in fifth grade, I can remember a moment in vacation Bible school where it all came down. We had this sort of Bible trivia game show thing that all boiled down to the end of the week. And I got the last question. I was the Christian school kids. All my friends thought it's in the bag. We got it now. And so the question came to me. And the question was, in the Bible, Jesus said, simply let your yes be blank and your no be blank. And I can remember the music minister's son looking over at me and goes, man, I know this one. Jonathan's got this one. We are winning this thing. And I hadn't paid too close attention most of the days during the week. And I said, uh, simply let your yes be no and your no be yes. And there was no joy in Mudville that day. Mighty Casey had struck out. You could hear the, you could hear the band just playing in the background, sad music. That was it. We lost the whole thing. And so for the rest of my life, I always remember Jesus' words that you'll find in Matthew 5, 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. I'm thankful we're not called to be in the vow-making business. Jesus said, simply speak the truth. You don't have to swear on anything. You don't have to somehow say, well, now I'm really serious and I'm going to say things this way or I'm going to make a commitment. You know, one of the phrases I've written on here is that uh, commitments and vows are different. And just to make sure I'm completely clear, that first blank there, Jesus' words to us are a great reminder that we don't need to be in the vow-making business. We're not called to have one level of honesty and then make some sort of binding commitment to the Lord. I think it's a right thing for us as believers to say, Lord, I want to commit now to, to be faithful in your word for the next 30 days. I want to, I want to you know, commit that in the morning I'm going to do this or, or whatever it might be to make a commitment. And um, a few, few months ago, I got a chance to, to be at the funeral of the last World War II veteran that I knew who walked through some tough things. Uh, even on the airfields in England in the war for the way that some guys flew back uh, and, and came back and, and got to, you know, he got to go on to glory and, and uh, just several months ago. And so I know he, like so many men in so many wars, had made a commitment to the Lord to say, God, if you'll get me out of here, I'll serve you for the rest of, the of my life. And that man, as a young man, had lost most of his hearing in the war. And by the time he got back, he could barely hear. And it got to a point where he couldn't hear. And every Sunday he was in church, though he couldn't hear a word that was said because he wanted to make sure to be faithful to be where God's people were and that his family was able to know God and to grow up. And so he kept that commitment and he kept that faithfulness. That's a good thing. You know what's a bad thing? Is when we want to make a promise to the holy, eternal, righteous king of the universe. And what we want to bank on is ourselves in a conversation with him. And that's where a vow goes wrong. Lord, I know that I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. We don't need to somehow place our emphasis on ourselves and to say, well, here's what I'm going to do or that. You know, Jephthah comes back home. His daughter comes running out. And uh, the third point I've got here for you, this story is a great example that it's more important to admit when we're wrong and then do what is right rather than vice versa. 
Jephthah might have been the kind of guy to say, well, I'm going to hang on to my principles. You know, I'm a man of my word. No, you need to be a man of repentance at that point. To say, God, I was wrong to speak the way I did. You delivered me. I know it wasn't because of this or, you know, it, it was because of your goodness and your will for our people. It's not, it, it is never going to be in God's will for you or I to do something that in Scripture is forbidden in order to somehow make ourselves look committed or, or some other kind of method. Uh, and so God does not command Jephthah to do this. Uh, he does not stop him. Uh, but this is a story that I think we, we should be challenged to say, you know what, at the end of, of everything, whatever forgiveness I've got to seek from the Lord, if it's for the sake of my kids, my grandkids, or otherwise, it's more important that I that I'm humble myself and do what's right. So that's the first passage. Let's go to the second passage. 2 Kings chapter 3. God bless Pastor Brandon. These are rough passages to sit there and watch somebody else get up and teach on. If, if he's up here teaching next week, y'all know what happened here. You know, bouncing in these, these odd passages. 2 Kings 3, verses 26 and 27. Now, let me set this passage up just a little bit. This point in time, you've got a split kingdom, and you've got the prophet Elisha, who is uh, really being God's man among so many difficult things that are going on. And so a battle takes place between Moab uh, and then the country or the nation of uh, Israel and Judah who unite together to come against them. God does a miraculous work in order to not only provide water for the, the Israelites and the, those of Judah, uh, but he also uh, wins the battle in such terms that Moab is where they are expected to win is all of a sudden routed. And so then what happens as the battle continues to go further and further south is that the Moabite king uh, does what we will see here in these two verses, Second uh, Kings chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. And then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Once again, you have a child's life that is lost. And this is also a window to us into the depravity of the ancient world, which is, you know, in many ways uh, still with us. The first question I've got here for you, or the question there for this passage, why did the pagan sacrifice of a king's son bring wrath on Israel? Well, let's start here. First blank, the world has been a dark place for a long time. The world has been a dark place for a long time. We have needed a Savior since Genesis chapter 3. And sometimes we get in a mode of thinking, really, the world's just started to go bad the last 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. People 100 years ago thought the same thing, and they would have their own ways of thinking for that. If we're not careful, we get rose-colored glasses to look at the past. The Bible reminds us again and again that the world has been a dark place for a long time. And I'm thankful that we didn't, you know, that I didn't live in a, in a time that was so, uh, you know, just it seemed like a war was always going on. You remember reading that phrase in the Bible at the time of the year when kings go to war, whether you like it or not. It, right now it's February and there's buds on the trees. If we lived, you know, 3,000 years ago, it'd be time to go to war. You know, this is this idea that it's getting warm again, and so there must be somebody to fight. It just seems that there's war going on constantly. Now, obviously, it's not every year, every time, but you just read about a lot of battles and difficulty in the Old Testament. And so why did the pagan sacrifice of a king's son bring wrath on Israel? 
Typically, the mystery in this passage, if you got your back of your sheet there, is interpreted in one of three ways, and I want to try to focus on those tonight because I think it's helpful for us to think through this. Number one, sometimes this passage is interpreted as the spectacle of their future king being sacrificed caused the Moabites to fight with increased fervor. That being involved in a battle that had already gone south, having 700 swordsmen then who at that point, you know, go to fight, that even that is not enough to bring the Moabites to a place of just real fury, but all of a sudden when they see their future king uh, sacrifice, that that leads them to fight with a, a reckless abandon like never before. Uh, that may possibly be the case. I don't tend to hold to that viewpoint, but there are those who feel that way, and obviously we don't know. We won't know for sure till we get to heaven. The second thing is that the sacrifice to the future king led the Israelites to withdraw out of horror that the battle had progressed so far. That the Israelites who were already involved in a difficult battle, there had been some amount of a siege there already, that they looked up and saw this happen and they said, well, it's, it's, the battle's done, let's, let's stop and let's, let's quit fighting and withdraw. Um, once again, there's a, a lot who believe this way and it, it might be the case. Um, me personally, I still have a hard time reading that into the text with all the violence that had taken place already, uh, that this one moment would be the time that really withdrew and, and really the language uh, points to indignation or wrath that comes against Israel. And so I have to say that the third point is really where I find myself more and I, I really am left to wonder uh, whether this is what took place and this is uh, point number three, uh, demonic action from a people steeped in idol worship could not win the battle, but it could take significant action against God's people. You might remember from the Bible the name of an idol named Kamash. That would have been the god of the Moabites, the main god. They were polytheistic people. They worshipped a lot of gods. But as they were uh, worshipping this, this god Kamash, one of the things that would be done is a human sacrifice when you were really serious. Now, obviously, Kamash, just like Dagon, just like Baal, just like any other god, had no power in and of himself. But we see the attribution of idol worship being demonic uh, from the truth of the Bible that ultimately that there's demonic activity behind much of what goes on. And so people who are praying and seeking out uh, an idol, it, it ultimately, if it's going to lead to anything, it's going to lead to something demonic. And so we've got here a picture of a king who does uh, something that is incredibly morbid and, and evil here on the city wall. And we read the language that there came great wrath against Israel. You know, in our lives, I'm not one of those people who, who thinks we need to ultimately, you know, be just too paranoid about spiritual activity. You know, we don't war against flesh and blood like the Bible says, uh, but against the prince of the power of the air and spiritual forces that, that we recognize there, even in this room, there's angels among us. Uh, and that what is taking place in a spiritual realm is more than we understand. And so one of the realities of that is to say, it's a risky thing for any of us to somehow seek after or run after evil, that often that can lead to a road or down a road where there's real consequences. And this, if this is what happened, it wasn't enough to turn the battle completely, but it was enough to make a real impact. You know, I, I know for um, the time that I've, I've been in ministry, I've never had somebody who claimed to be demon-possessed or something like that, but there have been moments uh, where it just, I, I just sense the spiritual weight 
uh, of something that was really wrong. Uh, or, or, or at times, uh, young people or even adults who had gone down a road of, of areas of the occult or otherwise and getting to sit with them and counsel with them. They talked about different things they felt like had been opened up in their, their homes and in their lives. And, you know, I don't know the truth of what some of those things are, but when we try to chase down a road that leads to Satan, there's bad things that are there. And so for this king to make a sacrifice, it's my belief that what is taking place here actually proves uh, that while we don't have what sometimes is called an exorcism or a casting out of a demon in the Old Testament in the truest sense, I do think we see demonic activity uh, in some places and we see that, that Satan's at work, uh, obviously, even still in the Old Testament. And then the last passage, 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember in the Garden of Eden that, I wonder what it must have been like. Adam and Eve there, able to grow everything, you know, really easily. There was no miracle grow needed. There were no pesticides needed. Imagine living in a garden and there's no poison ivy and there's no mosquitoes that are going to bite you. I mean, what that must have been like. The world was just perfect. And we don't know exactly how big the Garden of Eden was, at least not to my memory that we're given exact measurements of that. But I just think about how much good food there must have been in the Garden of Eden from the trees that were there to eat from. That really we're going to see a, a sort of recurring of that when we get to, uh, to eternity. We see that in the book of Revelation, that the tree of life is there once again. And we, we've got this way that every, every need has been fulfilled. And so it's, it's a reminder to us when we think back to the Garden of Eden that there were so many trees that Adam and Eve could eat from. How many were they told they could not eat from? One. King David has gone from being a shepherd boy, the last of a line of brothers who growing up in the society where he grew up probably could have expected little inheritance and not much future. Now he's gotten a chance to not only be a giant slayer, not only a chance to rise to, to power and to become king, but to be married, to have a family, and it's there in a weak moment at the time when kings go off to war that he sees a woman and says, I want her, even if it's the wife of one of my mighty men, as we see later, the wife of a man who has been a dear friend to me and has um, served on my behalf a warrior in my army. And so David and Bathsheba, really looking through the lens of 2023 too, I think one of the things that while there's so much that's not great about the political climate that we live in, I, I do think it's right to look backwards in this passage and probably to honor the, the nature of what's here to say, David took advantage of Bathsheba far more than this being sort of a mutual uh, situation. David was king, David was in authority, and we don't know what Bathsheba's heart was fully, but I think it's clear that he was more to blame, I believe, uh, than she was in this circumstance. And so as, as Bathsheba and, and David, as, as they've been found out, Nathan the prophet comes to them. Uh, Uriah has already been killed. You know that story where Uriah is put out in the front lines and then withdrawn from in order that he might die. David orchestrates that. And then God uh, comes to David through the prophet Nathan uh, and he says this, 2 Samuel 12, 13 through 15. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Nathan rebukes David. You might remember the parable that he gives of a man who loved a little sheep and a person who owned a great many sheep uh, stole this this sheep from him. And and so you get this picture that Nathan's painting of what David has done. Uh, And so the question then sometimes comes out of a passage like this or perhaps some others in the Old Testament. Uh, You'll see it here at the top of your page. If God ended the life of the child born to David and Bathsheba out of their sin, does that mean that he'll punish others perhaps specifically my children or my loved ones, for my sin? Are there going to be people in my life who have to suffer difficulty? I I can't tell you how many times I've looked at in the face of folks who are walking through difficulty and either through the way that they say it or the way that they roundabout allude to it, they ask the question, is my child going through what they're going through because of the failings that I made as a parent? Is my child going through the, the health situation that they're going through because of things in my life that aren't what they should be? I can't claim to speak for the Lord, but can I just say something to you as a means of encouragement? If God dealt with our children according to our own sin, none of us would have children, healthy children, or children that live to adulthood. None of us would. And so if God dealt with either we ourselves or our lineage in the way that that we deserve based on our sin, there would be no health, no, no goodness at all that was there. And so I think it's very important as we look at this passage not to read more into it than we should. I've got a few things listed for you here before we close, four points here. And the first is this, by God's grace, as I mentioned before, we live on this side of the cross in a new covenant between God and man through Jesus. David himself was unique in some ways because he stood as, as the king, the, the covenant really that was made uniquely through him in Scripture, the Davidic covenant. At this point, there's a way in which God is dealing with David, not only as a political, but a spiritual head in some sense of the people. And so there are ways in which David and the Lord uh, interact, which thankfully are not exactly the same as the way that the, the Lord now deals with us on this side of the cross. You know, one of the most beautiful but often uh, taken for granted phrases when we have communion. This is we're raising that cup and we remember Jesus' words. You remember this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That there's now an agreement between God and man in Christ that has made all the difference. And so for us, what that has meant is that now Christ is interceding on our behalf. I don't think it would be healthy for us to look at this passage as a normative thing in the Old Testament, but it especially would be something for us to say, you know what, I know that ultimately when God looks at me, when I've placed faith in Christ, He sees Christ and not me. And that's the greatest marvel of the universe and of human history, that God's able to look at us and see Christ when we've placed faith in Him. There's a new covenant between God and man through Jesus. The second thing that I've got there in terms of a blank, while God makes declarations in the Old Testament, both about the consequences of sin that lasts and divine punishments at times that would affect family members, we also need to remember the words of Jesus in John 9. I I gave specifically there for you here, John 9, 3. Some of you, I think it's been about two weeks since many of you looked at that in your life groups on Sunday morning. The disciples come by a man born blind and they ask this question, who sinned, Master, this man or his parents? Do you remember what Jesus says, John 9, 3? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this occurred so that the works of God might be shown in him. 
Thankfully, the difficulty that you and I walk through is, is not due primarily or not due. It would not be a safe assumption for us ever to make to say whatever I'm facing that's hard must be because of my sin or my parents' sin or somebody else's sin. Uh, that would not be a healthy understanding to start with in, in our looking at our own world, our own life. Is it possible that God could deal in different ways? Well, we can't speak for the Lord in every way, but it would be a terribly wrong assumption to look at any difficulty we have and somehow want to attribute it uh, to something that we've done or somebody else has done. We won't find that as a foundation in Scripture for God dealing consistently with people. Remembering Jesus' words that ultimately the challenges that we walk through above everything else are meant to bring glory to God and to draw people to the truth of Jesus. The third point, David's story is not the norm, and God sent a messenger to him to explicitly deliver what was to come, and it's a tragedy to assume things that God has not said to us explicitly. There's a really great line in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's work, where many of you are familiar with that, Pilgrim's passing through the valley of the shadow of death, and he's walking through all these trials. And he walks through this one place that's so dark and, and just so uh, full of, of torment. And as he's passing through there, he begins to hear a voice in his mind. And he doesn't realize that it's the voice of the enemy speaking into his mind and heart. But John Bunyan says something like this, Christians, uh, as Christian heard these words in his ear, he could scarcely distinguish what was coming from the outside and what was coming from the inside of his own mind. That the enemy wants to speak defeat into our heart and life constantly. And it's not going to be the Lord to drive us down a road to say, you know what? This happened because you're not good enough. This happened because you failed. This happened because you weren't this or weren't that. Now, are there consequences to our sin? Absolutely. Can those sometimes affect not only us but future generations in terms of bad decisions, whether that was any number of ways, those can have an impact throughout. I'm not talking about consequences for sin and decisions that we would make. But in taking something that we have no reason to tie to somehow ourselves to say, well, my son, uh, my son must be going through this, he must have this health issue because 10 years ago I made this terrible mistake in my life and God's now punishing me. Don't assume that. You don't have a, cl a clear line of, you know, God communicating that to you. That's what the enemy wants to speak into your heart and life. And you might be in here tonight. I hope you're in here tonight saying, well, that's ridiculous. I'd never think that. Well, I hope that's the case. But I can tell you that there are folks who walk through in every, every church in America, the doors every week, and they're feeling defeated or they're feeling condemned by something that they feel God is doing in their life based on something that they can't go back and change. Jesus has taken care of all the things that we can't go back and change when we've trusted in Him. And so if you're going to assume something, assume the things that Jesus has said explicitly to each one of us about His love and His forgiveness. Lastly, sometimes in God's judgment, we also see God's mercy. It's not clear whether all of David's children were going to be with the Lord in eternity, but this one in death was perhaps mercifully taken to be with his heavenly father. I was talking with someone recently about what passages of Scripture point us to the reality that young children who, who pass away before what's sometimes called the age of accountability in our, our uh, frame of reference, before they've come to faith in Christ for really young kids, babies, whatever it is, what happens to them? 
One of the passages that we go to is the phrase that David says just a few verses after what we've read here, is when he's asked by his servants, why are you not mourning and weeping now that you know the child is dead? David says, well, you know, I wept and I fasted while, uh, while he was alive and hoped that God's mercy would shine through, but now that he's, he's passed away, I'm not going to do that. Then he says this, I will go to him, but he cannot come to me. I will go to him, but he cannot come to me. You read about David's family line, and it's not clear, I think it's doubtful in some of their lives at best, whether Absalom, whether Amnon, whether several others were following the Lord in such a way that they were going to be right with him in eternity. We're not told in some of those areas specifically, but it's at least a safe assumption to say there may have been children that David had that ultimately were lost in our understanding. In between the birth of our two children, we went through what probably a lot of you in this room had gone through um, in some way, shape, or form, an ultrasound and a picture that looked the same that it had the last week when we'd come in, but now that heartbeat wasn't there. And what it was like for us to say, this is a child we'll, we'll never know. And I believe, as, as many do, that someday we're going to meet that child in heaven, that God's mercy is there. And we don't know why God chose to take that child on. I've done one funeral in my time in ministry with a little tiny casket and a family that hurts in a different way than any other funeral. And we don't ever know what would have happened. What would it have been like for David to get to heaven and the Lord to ultimately say, you know, everything I told you was right about the punishment that you deserved and what you received. But, you know, if, if any of us were ever, and I don't think we were, would be told what would have happened, what could have happened. Perhaps in some way the mercy of God also shines through that this child was going to be in glory uh, someday. And, and perhaps in a full life, in another set of circumstances, it, it would not have turned out that way. We just don't know the answer to those things. But at times we're really quick to assume a way to say, well, God perhaps was not as gracious here, and if we're not careful, we will miss that at times, even in God's judgment, there can be mercy. And I think this passage would, would point us well to consider that as well. And so, as our time comes to a close and our series draws to a close for hope in dark places, even if you're saying, boy, Jonathan, I don't know about these Old Testament passages, uh, maybe there's a few of you in here tonight who would say, you know what, I have wrestled with whether my failings have, have, you know, been the source of somebody else's pain, or I, I have wrestled with, uh, you know, whether, whether this or whether that, whatever it might be, I hope maybe perhaps there's a blessing there. Um, let's pray as we conclude our series and our time together. Father, would you help us to have the hope of Jesus Christ, the rich, lavish grace of our Savior, at work in our hearts and lives, not to lead to apathy or laziness, not to lead to license, but instead to lead us to walk more closely with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, may there not be despair, but may the light of the gospel shine through. And in those dark places, may we find you, may we find hope. We praise you, Lord. We look to you tonight and thank you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.